AirPods Pro with adaptive audio. Automatically keeps out the sounds you don't want to hear so you can listen to your music. And lowers your music to let in the sounds you do need to hear. Hi there. Hi, what can I get you? I'll have a strawberry mango coconut probiotic smoothie with wheatgrass. Anything else? Extra wheatgrass. Here you go. AirPods Pro with adaptive audio. Available on AirPods Pro second generation when enabled. You're ready for a comeback. And with Purdue Global, you can do more than take classes. You can take charge of your story, of your career, of your life. Earn a degree you can be proud of and get an education employers respect. It's time, your time, not just to go back to school, but to come back and move forward with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback at purdueglobal.edu. And we're back on Dealing Together, where we help good people who fell for bad deals. First caller? I had to buy three identical sweaters to get the fourth free. Oh, you got fleeced. Next caller, what's your deal? I paid for 20 tanning sessions, but had to use them in a month. Now I'm orange. Ooh, you got burned. Next caller. I traded in my old Samsung at AT&T for a new Samsung Galaxy S24+. Plus. Hmm, how's that bad? I got to choose from their best plans. So what went wrong? Oh, nothing went wrong. And you're calling to... To request a song? You want a song. Of course. The choice is yours. Our best smartphone deals. Your choice of plan. Learn how to get the new Samsung Galaxy S24 Plus with Galaxy AI on us with eligible trade-in. AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Offers vary by device. Subject to change. S24 plus 256 gigabyte offer available for a limited time. Terms and restrictions apply. See att.com slash Samsung for details. Hey, welcome to episode 352. Uh, one of my... Most favorite episodes. It's this one right here. Uh, Joe Galani. Music executive, sure. Sounds cool. But really one of the biggest, most influential ever in the history of country music. If not the most influential ever. He is going into the Country Music Hall of Fame, which is really, really hard to get into, even as a massive artist. Also going in this year is Keith Whitley and Jerry Lee Lewis. Like, that should tell you. Only three people. Many people were. It's just such a hard thing to get into, but he is, you know, that influential. And so... It's just stories about him going, well, yeah, I'm not scared to take it on. Let me see what I can do here. I believe in myself. Never done it before, but let's see what happens. And just saying, yeah, I'll try it. I mean, it's really cool. It's, it's awesome, right? Really cool. Like a little bit, I was like, dang, he's too big and too cool to be here <laughs> in the studio. That's really how I felt. But I like him a whole lot, and I haven't spent a lot of time with him personally, but at the very end of this podcast, I do finally tell him and how he's kind of affected my life here in Nashville. I think he went through – way earlier things that I went through way later as far as people going, wait, you're not just like us. And he just crushed it. So, you know, he signed artists like Clint Black and Kenny Chesney, Sarah Evans, Vince Gill, The Judds, Martina McBride, Lori Morgan, Katie Oslin, Carrie Underwood, Chris Young. I could go on and on, but just so many things that he talks about here are still happening because he was like, what if we did this? And it just worked and he sold it. Anyway, that's the deal. He was like the youngest guy to run a record label back in the day, right? Yep. I don't think I'm making that part up. That is correct. And, I, you know, I did a thing where I, I'm super interested in the acts that he found and he discovered that ended up being big stars and also his career. So I tried to make it like when I watch like a cool Netflix series and they kind of flash, not around, but they like cut two storylines back and forth. Yeah. And so we talk about an artist he signed and then I'm like, all right, so this part of your career you did. Th-. And I tried to go back and forth a little bit just so it would 
be engaging to everyone if you wanted to hear about the artist he signed or his career. So I like it. I'm glad that you're here. This is a big one for us and a big one for me, and I, I don't think I screwed it up, which is just a relief. Because sometimes I'm like, well, I screwed that one up. No, it was good. Uh, enjoy episode 352. Here you go, Joe Galani. Now, Joe, we have important people that come by here, but then we have really important people that come by here. And so I don't know what strings... Who got you to come up here is my question because, you know, somebody... To you? Yeah. Oh. Right there on the mic. We're talking the microphone right there. Yeah, how, how did I... Oh, he did. Yeah, 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 yeah. I've known him forever. So Tom Betchy is, for those listening, one of my managers. I have two managers, and Tom Betchy um, is very well-connected, and obviously Joe to get you up here. So I appreciate you coming up here. That's really nice of you. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, you can pull that down if you'd yeah, like. Yeah, sure. Whenever I saw... You know, it's always a big deal whenever they announce the Hall of Fame inductees. And I was lo just looking to see who was going to make it this year because I know Ronnie and Kicks got in last year. Right. And um, and I saw you, and I was like, holy crap, that's awesome. I was so excited for you. And I wonder, did you have any idea that you were up for it, that you would probably get it? Like, what did you know before they announced who was going in? Uh, I knew I was on the ballot. And... Um... <laughs> Actually, I voted on the first round for, well, I can say his name, Irving Waugh. And uh, the second ballot came out, and I was removed from the category in terms of being able to vote. And I called Brendan over at the CMA, and I said, what's up with that? He said, we can't have you voting for yourself. I said, I wasn't going to do that, but <laughs> I completely get it. So whenever <clears throat> they announced that you made it, because you've, you've done so much, we're going to talk about a lot of that. How does it make you feel at this stage of your career to, again, get probably one of your highest achievements? Um, it's not something that you really ever think about because it's such rarefied air that you really don't think you get there. And it's not something that I think most people that go in there really strive for. It just happens. Right. So humbled, honored, in disbelief. Well, congratulations. That is Thanks. quite the honor. And again, you've been honored in so many ways over so many years. This has got to be a, a quite, maybe refreshing is not the word for you, but I, I don't know. It, does, it almost probably feels new, like a new, something new for you. I feel like you've done so much. Well. Like to be in a Hall of Fame with yeah. all these country stars. Like, is there anything that's, that's similar to this in your no. career? No, 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 no. I mean, when I did the... Um when Ronnie and Kicks hosted the press conference for the nominees, um, and I was standing there just before I went up, and I looked to my left, and there's Hank Sr. and to the right is Patsy Cline. I went, what am I doing here? You know, uh, it's just, it, it's, it was surreal. It really was. You, you mentioned that, and again, I, I can appreciate your humbleness, but what are you doing here? And I can list 10,000 reasons why <clears throat> you are in the Hall of Fame and have done so much. But I was kind of going over some of your personal history that we'll get to in a second where you, you know, moved from New York down to Nashville and then back to New York and back to Nashville. Uh, but I just kind of want to start with some of the acts you've signed and kind of bounce around between your career and the acts that you've signed and what you saw in them early. Because there is such a skill, maybe even an instinct, and you could tell me, you know, what part of your talent or, or, or gift that you use when finding these great acts. But if we were to talk about Alabama... Mm -hmm. For example, what did you see in that group that early? Actually, it was at the country radio seminar that I saw him for the first time. I'd heard about him several times, and my boss at that time was Jerry Bradley. And un unbeknownst to me, he was tracking them at the same time that I was. 
And I went down, it was the, uh, as you know, the show used to be just one band. And then everybody came up and sang with that one band. So you mean there's like a house band and then all right. the artists would come in? Got right. it. And so Alabama got up there and it was, you know, they didn't use the house band, but they were part of the house band. And uh, I think that's always a tough gig anyhow. You know, I mean, it's everybody's sitting out there and you don't quite know what to expect and you're nervous. But they were natural born entertainers. The harmony was unbelievable. Randy Owen still to this day is one of the greatest country singers we've had. Whenever there's a group like that, and I guess what year? 81. Okay. So 81 or so. And what was the wine and dine process like in 81? Or were they, were they being pursued by multiple labels? I know you said someone else was tracking them as well. I have friends now that are, you know, that people want to sign a deal and you have five labels coming yeah. at them and they're all promising them things and doing nice things. For, what was it like in 81 when you find an act that you really like? There was nobody else pursuing them. They were on a small independent label called MDJ. And Dale Morris uh, was the manager at that time. And so it really was just a direct negotiation between us. Uh, there was no other competition for them. Whenever you sign them, do you say, all right, here's our, here's our vision for you? Or was Alabama so, did they know who they were at that point? How, how, how green were they when you signed them? Oh, no, they were not green. I mean, from a live standpoint, they were, they were seasoned. I and mean, they've been doing it a long time, a lot of shows. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And in terms of vision, I think at that time, uh, we didn't know what the word vision meant. Uh, it was just... We like you. We think you got the potential and the songs. I mean, you know, my home's in Alabama, Tennessee River, mountain music feels so, I mean, you know, you get the story. It's just, it's all there. And they only got better uh, as performers. And um, one of the first things that we did was we did uh, a tour of rock and roll clubs like The Bottom Line and the Whiskey out in L.A., um, and we flew in a bunch of radio people and industry people. And even then, people were just going, we've just seen the country Beatles. And so it was early on in their career. But uh, the other thing, too, was Randy Owen, the lead singer, um, was probably, in another life, one of the best promotion people I've ever seen. He just locked on to both retailers and radio people. Anybody he had to know and take care of and make sure that they were doing a good job, he was focused on it. You know, there's no such thing as a slam dunk, especially in anything creative, right? We, right. we may think we have it. There have been times where I've written <clears> things, and I'm like, this is it, and it's not. It's just not. And there are times where it's just a throwaway something where I'm like, I don't know. I'm just going to, and it becomes this wild success. When you have something like Alabama, uh, an entity like that, what was the first success with that band where you went, oh, yeah, like I knew they were good, but now we all know they're good, and, and we're here with them, you know, in a business sense. We got to mountain music, it was all over. But I'll take you back for a moment because country music at that point was still very much a regional format. You know, we were southeast, midwest, southwest, a little bit of each of the coasts. And Alabama was the first act um, where you, remember the Tower Record stores? Mm -hmm. Where I actually went to the meeting with them and they went, what's up with this band? Normally they were like... Were they actually inquired? They, oh, they, they wanted, wanted more yeah, about it. Because yeah. their country section was about seven records deep. And uh, they, they really were excited about it. So that was one of the first signs that we had that we were kind of getting outside the neighborhood. You grew up in New York, <laughs> right? And so uh, what town? What? Uh, it was actually Queens. Okay, so you grew Archie, up... Archie Bunky territory. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Da, 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 da. <laughs> 
So when that show was on, did it feel like that was happening in your neighborhood? Oh, yeah. I mean, I could relate because all those houses were built the same. They were all attached <laughs> in row after row of those, block after block. So you grow up, and what music <clears throat> is influencing you in, you know, the 60s? Stones, Beatles, Dave Clark Five, um, uh, all, you know, anything that was, the British invasion was huge at that point. You know, Little Richard, I mean, it was just typical rock and roll. So for you growing up in a time where, like, even if I look back, I mean, that was probably music at its peak, right? Mm -hmm. at, at, whenever that, I think that culture consumed so much, they owned so much of the market share, we'll call it that. Um, why get into music, though, professionally? What made you go, I got to do this, not just to listen, I want to get a record and just listen to it and, and love it. Why, why would you want to get into it all the time? Well, I actually, when I came out of college, I interviewed with several companies, and RCA is one of the two companies that offered me a gig. And uh, at that point, when I was interviewing, I was a little too cocky at that point. I was sitting down. The guy was the head of um, uh, finance, and he, he, I said to him, what division? Because it was RCA, so it was Carnet Carpet, Banquet Foods, Random House, um, NBC, and then RCA Records. And I said, what's RCA Records? And he said, what do you mean? I said, well, I'm an avid collector. I don't have any of yours. I, I, know, <laughs> I, I know my labels, and I don't have one of your things. What do, you, what do you mean? You know, we're very strong in show tunes, and we're very strong in classical music. And I'm looking at him going, really? But I, So I went to work for RCA, and it was not something I was thinking about as a music career. I was just thinking about a career. Like a job. Yeah, I'm out of school. I got a wife. I got a kid. Let's go. What did you do in school? Like, what you're going to college? What did you think you were going to do? Uh, I came out. I was looking for business opportunities. So I, I was a finance major and a marketing minor. So you studied money. You studied yeah. marketing. Mm -hmm. it wasn't so much you studied anything about music or. No, I, I played in a band and I was pretty poor at it. And, uh, you know, loved music. Listen, I mean, I still remember walking around with that transistor radio when we were kids. Just listen to WABC radio. You go to RCA in what year? 71. And in that three or four years before you come to Nashville, like what were your job duties? And I, my assumption is you climbed pretty fast right. in New York. So what did you start as and what did you end as in New York? I ended up as a product manager. So I had my elite roster at that point because I was the kid that they didn't, didn't know a whole lot. They gave me this struggling artist called David Bowie. And Lou Reed, and uh, several other acts that nobody really remembers at all. And if RCA was, like you mentioned, just to paraphrase what you said, like uh, they had a lot of show tunes. Um, you know, David Bowie, Lou Reed, that's not quite show tunes. Were they going into a new kind of area? Yeah, when I joined, they weren't on the label. And certainly they hadn't succeeded. Um, they had things like the main ingredient at that point, and... Uh, Buffalo Springfield for a brief second, you know, that kind of, it was more one-hit wonders than it was anything else. Back in 74, so what my assumption would be is that most country music was on an AM radio? Mm -hmm. Okay. So why would a fellow like yourself, who's doing pretty good in New York, decide to move to Nashville to pursue um, a career in a format that's mostly on AM radio? And I'm assuming you didn't grow up around a lot of country music. Only country music I heard was on AM radio. So Johnny Cash... Eddie Arnold, Skeeter Davis, that guy. If they crossed, I yeah. heard it. Like like a Johnny Cash would cross. Yeah, yeah sure. Yeah. So you moved. And how did you get approached about moving to Nashville? Uh, I got called into the office of the general manager and the head of uh, human resources and said, we have got a great idea. We think you should move to Nashville. 
And your initial instinct was? <laughs> Hell no. <laughs> <laughs> what, what, what do you, what is, what's down there? Why would I want to go down there? I'm here. I'm, I'm in New York. Right. And uh, their, their, their instructions to me were, just go down there for two years. Uh, I think it'll be a good experience for you. You'll learn the inner workings of a smaller operation. And if you don't like it, you can come back. And so I came down and met with Jerry Bradley downtown at the Hilton Hotel. And um, when I got back on the plane and I went home to my wife, I said, uh, well, I'm not going to get that job because I know I pissed him off. <laughs> you know, I, I just, we weren't on the same page. So I go into the office. I, that was a Friday, and I came back to the office on the Monday. They called me in, and I went, I'm expecting to hear, hey. It's all over, and they said, he loved you. <laughs> You're going down. I went, oh, no. What would you tell your wife? <laughs> only two years. <laughs> it's only two years. So do you think they were being truthful when they said go learn it and come back, or do you think they really maybe had you in mind to go down and actually make something of it? No, at that point, it was really just go down and, and see what you can you know, the companies at that point were really A&R entities, and there were promotion departments and everything else was out in New York. Um, it really wasn't, it was a small business. And people were still learning how to, you know, market and develop artists on a national basis, forget international. So you're in your early 30s when you come to Nashville? Um, actually, 24. Wow, you're in your early 20s. Yeah. So you moved down... And you're working at RCA, but what is your job when you move here first? Because I know you're the, you know, one of the youngest, if not the youngest person to take over a major label. But so you move here in your 20s. What do you do? I had a, the glorious title of manager of administration, which really meant whatever Jerry wanted me to do, I did. But it really was trying to um, bring some semblance of order to the various departments, trying to get them involved with the corporation overall, the RCA corporation. I mean, I had been in the company a number of years. I had a lot of friends in the promotion department and sales department. So Jerry was, hey, go up there and meet with them, see what you can do for our records. And that was part of, part of what I did. I want to come back to that in a minute, and that's where we are. You've just arrived in Nashville, and you have a job that sounds like I don't know what it is because the words are so vague, right? You're, right. you're yeah. doing it all. Yeah. It's just, yeah. um, let's move over a bit and go to another artist, uh, Kenny Chesney. Mm -hmm. So you met Kenny around what year? Uh, 90. And what did he have going for him when you met him? Well, the story is Dale Morris. We're coming back to the same person. Dale Morris, uh, I was getting ready to move back to Nashville from running the company in New York. And Dale called me over the weekend and said, I've got this kid, Kenny Chesney. I said, who's Kenny Chesney? Well, he's on Capricorn. I think you'd really like him. I said, well, send me the record, uh, you know, and, and we'll have a conversation. So I got the record and I thought it was interesting and in I, what way as a songwriter i thought he had a unique perspective uh he was a country singer uh which at that point from looking at the roster we certainly could use a few more of those and he had been out working the road you know i mean he had been working through the whole process i had a respect for capricorn records and um dale said i think i can get him off so that's what we went down the road so Capricorn Records, uh, my assumption is he had, I've never heard of Capricorn. I'm assuming they're not around anymore. Maybe they no, are. Allman Brothers and those kind of guys. That's the Phil Walden was the, the original guy that ran that company. Small? Yeah. So Kenny's on a small independent label, and so you guys identify him as someone that you think you could make into a major star. 
Mm-hmm. So you have the records, you listen to it. He has a, an interesting perspective and a, an interesting way to present things. So you call him up, you go see him. What happens? Uh, actually, we met months later in the office. And, uh, you know, I mean, he, he was young. I mean, he came in, you know, it was, it was almost like George Strait light. I mean, he was really trying. I was was he cowboy hat then? Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's crazy to think about uh, hat at Kenny. Yeah. He's just not that anymore. It hasn't been for a, for a long time. And so he says to you, like, what's what's Kenny Chesney's goal? Because he's on Capricorn, and you guys are, you think there's a nice relationship that can happen there. What does Kenny Chesney tell you he wants to do with his career at that point? He wants to be one of one of those guys that everybody, you know, Phil, well, stadiums weren't in the, in the conversation at that point. So it's Phil Arenas, and I want to be one of the biggest stars out there. And I'm sure a lot of people say that. I mean, I think pretty much everybody probably says that. I want to be a big star. Sure. But why was Kenny different as far as, Aside from the record that you heard and you thought his presentation was interesting and his songwriting, but why Kenny and why did you think he could be the massive star that he is now? He worked his ass off. And, I mean, he really, whatever he didn't have as a skill, as an entertainer or as a writer, he would go out and find those guys and spend the time to learn. Uh, I always thought it was interesting. He, when he was in town, he was always going to see shows. Something he continued on much later on, you know. Uh, he went out and toured with Alabama when he didn't need to tour with Alabama. He'd go out and open for George Jones when he didn't need to open for George Jones. He just wanted to learn. How do you entertain? What are you doing that makes it so different? And they were, you know, his heroes at the same time. When did Kenny go from being a guy that had some moderate to good radio success to being a superstar in your mind? Uh, early 2000s. And what was it? A song? Was it? How forever feels. That was the one. And you, you could probably you're where you are. I'm sure there are certain songs where you can just feel it. You're like, okay, we're looking at sales, or we're looking at concert tickets. Like this is the element that is changing it. He actually was doing better business concert wise than we were doing on records at that point. So he was making more money at live shows than you were selling. He was selling records. Yeah, but I mean, what you had were people. But think about back then in the late 90s there there's no internet people were just showing up it's word of mouth and so people are going out to see him and what we needed to do was connect the dots he had you know we'd have a hit then we'd have a miss we'd have a hit we'd have a miss how forever feel was the first time we started a string where we just kept going at it well that string uh the consistency of the string what you say you started hitting them in a row what was the consistent I mean, in terms of numbers or no, in terms of you started to, to put them together, but, but what, what were this? Was it a uh, certain texture of the songs, a tempo, an idea? What did was he beach Kenny yet? Was like, what was it? No, he hadn't reached beach Kenny yet. Uh, he was getting there and, um, he was developing the identity, you know, coming out with the rock and roll t-shirts, the tight jeans, the whole routine, working out physically getting there because it was a physically demanding job that he had and really spending the money on the production. He knew that he needed to make a bigger and bigger show. But, you know, when we made records, we pulled four singles off, sometimes five singles, and left singles on the album that we could have pulled out. So the quality of the music was there. And it was. It, it was everything from the beach. But th- then you'd go through, there goes my life. You know, I mean, you know, it just, it covered the gamut. And um, occasionally he would write them, but most of the time they were outside writers. You know, I often say that I love Slow Kenny. Like, I connect with yeah. Slow Kenny. Anytime Kenny's doing a ballad or a uh, slightly slower than mid, like, those are my Kenny Chesney yeah. songs. Tequila. Yeah. Oh, man, that's my, one of my favorite songs ever. Yeah. 
And so, like, slow Kenny, that's my jam. Sometimes when he does the beach stuff and the fast stuff, I don't even like the beach. So I'm like, you know what, I'll pass on this one. But, like, man, the guy's got an emotional catalog. So Kenny Chesney, big star, Mount Rushmore of artists since 1990 for sure. Hey, this is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. As a nostalgic voice from your past, I'm here to remind you that amongst the stressful and chaotic existence we live in 2024, you deserve to get away. It's time for a vacation, no matter when you're hearing this. And let me tell you how you'll get there. The 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. Want to bring the family to the mountains with the Santa Fe's available H-Track all-wheel drive? Well, it's got standard third-row seating and available dual wireless charging pads for the kids who just want to stare at their phone and not talk to you. You know what I mean. The Hyundai Santa Fe becomes available early 2024, so get on it now before all the good camping sites are full. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Oh, such a clutch pickup, Dave. I know, right? I was worried we'd bring back the same team. Oh, no, I meant those blackout motorized shades. MVP of the room. Blinds.com made it crazy affordable to replace our old blinds. Hard to install? No, it's easy. Even you could do it. Nice. I installed these and then got some for my mom, too. You fly across the country to do the install? Nope. Blinds.com can do it all. All she had to do was pick what she wanted. She talked to a design consultant for free and scheduled a professional measure and install. Look at you, Hall of Fame son. Oh, I just picked the winning team. They're the number one online retailer of custom window coverings in the world. Oh, Blinds.com is the GOAT. The GOAT. He shoots. He scores. Go to Blinds.com for 40% off site-wide and a 100% satisfaction guarantee. Go right now for 40% off site-wide at Blinds.com. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. Let's go back to New York. You moved to Nashville. You're working as some administration position. Um, and so do you start to climb here? Yeah. Is it, was that a goal of yours to climb here? Was it a goal of New York's for you to climb here? New York, at that point, I think I was off the radar in New York for that two-year period. Uh, we'd check in occasionally with each other. But um, I think the turning point for me was that Jerry began to see, Jerry Bradley began to see, when I go to New York, I'd bring something back that helped us. And I had this conversation with him one day because I kept, I was not in charge of promotion, but I was trying to figure everything out in terms of country radio. I really had not been involved with the format. And we kept getting these records that didn't quite compete with everybody else on the charts. But I mean, to the most of us, it sounded like we should be competing. So I dove into promotion and tried to start figuring out, meeting with people, going out with the promotion guys hitting radio stations. And, you know, I came into jury one day. And I said, you know, we're not, we're not doing what we need to be doing. And he looked at me and he said, well, go damn, God damn it, go figure it out. I said, well, I'm not in charge of promotion. He said, you just go figure it out. I'll take care of it from there. So I came back and I said, well, here are the things that we need to do. He said, okay, I'll put you in charge. 
And I went, wait, 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 wait. I haven't run a staff. You know, I've been in promotion, but I haven't run a staff. And so that was the trial by fire. And that fire, as you're in the fire, do you realize that it's easier or harder or that you're naturally good at it or it's something that maybe you didn't have the instinct for, but you could work really hard and figure it out? Like, where did you fall when you got into this promotions world and now you're running it? I felt like I could do it, but I needed the experience. You know, I was surrounded by other labels where guys have been doing this stuff for 10 or 15 years. I've been doing it for 15 or 20 months. So it took me time to build those relationships and understand the system. But then I went after it. Did you feel like a little bit that you were at the right age at a time when things were changing and you had the right vision and mindset? Because, again, if you're working with guys that have been doing it 15 years, I mean, even, you know, in 83, 84, 85 that's it, a significant change since 75, 76 oh, yeah. as far as technology. Um, and, you know, I think I got lucky being this age because I was using the internet and, you know, doing podcasting stuff before everybody was doing it. But I happened to be very young at the right time. And so everyone's like, wow, look at this guy. He's doing all this revolutionary stuff. No, I was just 22. Right. It really wasn't revolutionary. I just was young doing it. Did you find that a bit of that was because you were younger and you were actually – using the technology of the day instead of having to learn it at an older age? That was part of it. But I also think just like you, you, you given an opportunity, you went after it and you, you were not afraid of trying things. And that gave you the entree. Same thing with me. I was not afraid of trying and failing if I need, but I was going to go after it. And, you know, anytime I needed to be on an airplane out in LA, out in New York, out in Dallas, I just went and you, you build those relationships and you begin to understand the stations and the personalities and the markets. And that really did help me when I went back to the, the artists and said, look, this is what's coming back about the music and why we're not succeeding. Or if we were succeeding, this is all the good news. And there's not really a lot of bad news. And at that point, um, we had not developed a system. We were just getting to the point of, you know, the tracking systems like the BDS and media base that was just coming on. You were still dealing in archaic systems where people were, yeah, hey, it's uh, yeah, it's in power. They would just say how many times they played it, and you had to believe them. Absolutely. Wow. So you're credited with uh, really changing the formula of how promotion is done to sell records. What did you do in your mind that was so different? Well, one of the things was bringing the new artists out. I mean, we created the original promo tour. I mean, Loretta was the person that did it. And we just used the same model. It started with the Judds, and we went out with the Judds and took them into studios and brought radio people into studios. And that worked, but what we found out uh, later on when we did KT and Clint was that if we went to the actual stations, then people went in there, you met everybody in the station, they, you know, they'd cut jingles, they'd cut liners. So there was an advantage to going to the marketplace. Prior to that, people didn't really travel around to radio stations. Is it crazy to you that that's, that's still the thing? It's a personal business. You know, you, you, it's, it's nice to play it, but you want to know something about them. Sometimes that personal relationship is what gets you over the hump to adding a record. So uh, what I hear you saying is people. Always a people business. Whether it be a songwriter, a producer, or a manager, it's always people. Let's go to the Judds for a second. Growing up for me, massive because my mom loved them. <laughs> She would sing them all the time. Like one of the memories I have of my mother is her singing uh, Why Not Me or just 
it was all Judd's all the time. Uh, and, you know, you have a mom and a daughter, and I don't know that I have seen that before, a straight mom and a daughter that made it to a level like the Judd's or even a mid-level. So uh, you're, you're signing them. you got to invest money in them. Like, what did you see about those two that made you think that was something to put a bunch of money into and well, believe in? We used to, when we would go out to L.A., um, we'd stay at this little hotel called La Park. And the guy that was in charge of Curve Productions, Dick Whitehouse, who passed away about a year and a half ago, <clears throat> he and I had been trying to do business for a while and just had never hit on anything. So we had breakfast and we were in the, the suite talking and, and he was getting ready to leave. And, he's, and I said to him, you got anything for me? He said, well, I've got this mother-daughter and I've got a work tape, but it's not ready. I'll, wait, wait till we get back. I said, what do you think, though, when you hear mother-daughter? Before anything oh, else. What, it's magic. If you hear, I have a mother-daughter, are you like, that's so original that if they're good, I want it? Absolutely. Because I don't, I've never heard mother You know, before them, and I don't know and have the experience you have of being around, I just haven't heard a mother-daughter do it on a level of contemporary. And, and they were, even on the, the demos, they were great. So I said, look, I'm going to be back in Nashville on Monday. Why don't we get together anytime next week? You tell me when. So I think it was Wednesday or Thursday of that week. When Ona and Naomi came in, three songs, they walk out. I go, I called Dick and said, we've got to, we got to make a deal. And we did that day. What are they, and maybe you don't remember, but what are they coming in sync? Do they have a guitar? Are they doing acapella stuff? No, they had a guitar. And, uh, you know, Y was playing and singing, and they were doing the harmony, and Naomi is entertaining, telling you the stories. And I honestly don't remember at this point. So, Winona <coughs> must have, how old was she? She's a teenager, obviously. 16. Yeah, 16, 17. I think that 16, is, 15. That is crazy. Yeah. yeah. And to have a, you know, you hear about stage parents a lot. That's a literal stage parent. That's a parent on stage with you, and you're doing it together. What was that dynamic like for them early? Because they're equal stars. Yeah. But they're not equal in the house. Yeah. That, so, I, I would assume that's, managing that dynamic would have been tough. It took a moment. Uh, I think that, you know, why was beginning to see that she was the center of attention, but she did need her mom uh, for the harmony part and also for the entertainment part. <clears throat> and why just was really good talking to people. You know what? I mean, uh, Naomi was, why was still, she was a kid, Yeah, but she was, she was gaining the experience rapidly. So you're going station to station. You're doing. You're figuring it out. Your your data is happening because you found a new technique, right? Mm-hmm. And you're you're starting to slowly see it. Uh, when do other companies start to see what you're doing and how it's working? And they start to mimic what you're doing. Several years later, but you just you know. Then we went from you know those promo visits to the bus tour. We would go around the country on a bus, and at first we did it just as a label going into radio stations, you know, and hitting them and taking them on the bus, showing the videos, playing on the music talking for a while, you know, three cities a day, just kept going around the country for four or five months. And then we got the idea to start doing bus tours where you would bring the artists to the radio station on the bus and, again, take them on, spend the time. Just and that We had that locked down for a couple of years before somebody said, oh, we'll do that too. <laughs> it's also a costly. Yeah. I mean, it costs a lot of money to move an artist around for months in a bus. And it's time-consuming for your staff, coordinating everything. You know, getting everything together, making sure that you've got everything you need. And at the same time, promo guys have to keep, you know, working on those records. So you're promo touring, you're head of promotions. When does that turn into 
in, or maybe there's a couple steps in between, but when do you actually take the helm? Uh, Jerry stepped down in 82, so I took it right after that. And how did that feel to you, like it's t- my time or like holy crap? No, I th- well, I know at that time the uh, company was kind of like, mm, are you ready for this? And I went, yeah. Is it because your age? Yeah. More than anything else? Because it sounds like you've done things that nobody else has done. You've yeah. seen things in ways that haven't been seen. And had you maybe been 45, they wouldn't have asked the question, right. possibly. So you're 32? Mm-hmm. And they say you're ready for this. And what do you say? Yeah. What yeah. did you feel, though, inside your heart? Yeah, I felt like I could do it. You know, I mean, again, just as I said before about running a staff, running a label is a different thing than being like the, the GM. You know, the buck stops there. What new responsibility did you have running a label that maybe you didn't know you were going to have when running a label? When you start building a roster, that's a completely different experience than just working records. Because? You're painting a picture. What you really do see should represent this label. And where are the holes in the marketplace? What has the competition got? What do you have? Can you do better than they are in the various areas? You could have three women on on the roster but maybe they weren't better than Trisha Yearwood. You know, you got to find where, and so we had the Judds, you know, you could crack through and, and, you know, moved on to Lori Morgan. And, you know, it was just working through that process of trying to find, when you build a label, you build a catalog and you have to have those artists that are going to have a long tail, be able to sell for a long period of time. If you just have a series of one hit wonders, you're just constantly spending, you're on a gerbil wheel. But building, yeah, you know, you have to be consistent about the music, consistent about the moves with the manager in terms of touring. What are you doing on the TV personnel? How do you get them on shows? Moving through the entire process. I have a friend who is a pitching coach at a major university, and another school called him and said, hey, why don't you come and be the manager? He's like, great. Always been looking for the opportunity to be a manager. He gets over and he realizes he does really enjoy the job, and you know, he loves being a manager, but he can't spend as much time with the pitchers anymore. Like the thing that got him there that he loved to do, that he invested all this time in learning and teaching and uh, communication in talking about pitching, he could not do as much. So here you are. You've created a new template for promotion and finding artists. But now you're running a label. Did it pull you away from what you were really great at a bit and where you couldn't spend as much time? Obviously, you couldn't be on the road as much. But did it take you away from what you loved? And did you have to find people that had similar vision as you? There's no way you do this as an individual. You have to have a team. And that was really, I think for me, a process of learning um, how to pick the right people, which allowed me to spend less time in the field and more time with the artist. But more time with the artist also meant not just the studio, but being on the road. So it was a balancing act. As the head, who was your first major success that wasn't already on the artist? Like you couldn't, let's say we have to take everybody off the table that you'd already found, uh, you'd nourished, but you're the head, you find somebody brand new. First major success running the label. Judd's. Judd's were the first one through. Were you running the label when you found them? Oh, yeah. You were? Oh, yeah. And so is there a different kind of... uh, you know, just being straight proud whenever you're the head guy. Is it a different yeah. feeling? Well, the the moment for me was when Conway Twitty, my assistant, said, Conway Twitty's on the phone for you. I said, Conway? He said, I just heard the judge. You've done a damn good thing, boy. And hung up. 
was like, okay, I got the stamp of approval. Uh, Clint Black, mm-hmm. who I, I think it's so cool. I have a relationship with Clint now. And growing up in Mountain Pine, Arkansas, I knew every Clint Black song. I mean, he was just a hero musically to me and someone that I never thought I'd get to know, much less be friends with. I mean, guy is smart as a whip, like mm-hmm. funny. And when people come into my show, for the most part, I feel like they'll come in, uh, put some bowling bumpers up, take care of them, you know, make them look good. That's my job, make them look good. They, they'll sound good, but I'll make them look But Clint, there ain't no yeah. bumpers, and I got to watch out because he's going he's gonna to give it to me real good. Yeah. So tell me about meeting Clint and what it was with Clint that, what it was about Clint that made you go, that guy's a star. Well, first is the voice. Second was the look. Third, I found out how funny and smart he was because, you know, you, you go in and you, you meet the guy and, you know, you're a little bit intimidated and it just took a little bit of time for us to break the ice. But then you just said, man, this guy, he just, he can really wrap his, you know, his arms around a crowd and they just feel like it's family. And then the songs, I mean, just one after another, you know, I mean, killing time, no news. I mean, just the way we went through that. And he was, um, yes, he was a country singer, but at the same time, he was one soulful son of a bitch. I mean, just the ability for him to just approach each of his songs a different way, sometimes live, not just give you the three minute version, but do what Clint can do, which is just wail and then play. I saw him over the course of the tour, the first couple of years, really get to be a guitarist. Prior to that, he was a rhythm player, but he did learn how to play and lead and lead guitar. Sarah Evans. Yeah. Whenever you signed Sarah Evans, what was it that drew you to her? Because she, she's a bit of a wild card, and I enjoy being around her because I never know what I'm going to get with yeah. Sarah. Was she like that in her early days? Yeah. Um, and that first record we made with Pete Anderson was really a throwback to Loretta Lynn days, uh, reviewed critically, but not commercially successful, big personality, big voice, um, great at collaborating with people. So it, you know, it was a process again, almost like Kenny to a certain degree, you know, we'd get one, lose one, get one, lose one. And then, um, no place that far came out we got Vince on the background at that point. And just started taking off from there. So you're running the label. You put in 9, 10, 11 years or so as the head at, the fir- at first. About Before de- I moved to New York. Yeah, about a decade or so. Yeah. Um, I mean, for you, before you moved to New York, before you came back, what was the high point in that first decade of run for you uh, as far as your career? You know, I mean, I think we had been named label of the year for a decade. Wow, really? Yeah, and that was that was pretty powerful stuff for us. You know, because people come in and out of that slot, and we held it. Were you so hard to get a hold of? You're the, I mean, King Dingling in Nashville. Everybody, you could change lives like that. I mean, you were the biggest guy in town. I gotta imagine everywhere you went, somebody was trying to hand you a a tape, something calling your office, dressing up like a delivery man coming in. That stuff had to be happening to you all the time. It, you know, if somebody called me, I returned the call within 24 hours. I always did that. I didn't leave the office till I was done. I just, it was about relationships. And you can ask anybody that worked for me or worked with me all during those years. I, I called you back. The king of Nashville is calling people back all day. Yeah. I mean, that's the job. 
you got to stay in touch with everybody. I mean, I get it, but I would just think at some point when everybody wants to get in touch with you, that it will be hard to have enough capacity. Well, to- you'd start setting up where you have an A&R department, you have a promotion department, you go see so-and-so, yeah. and if you then come back to me, but not directly. Why do you go back to New York? <laughs> it was the reverse of, of the other, the argument that got me down here. I went to... Uh, my boss came down from uh, uh, BMG, and I thought he was hinting around about me going to work in New York. And I, and I, you know, I said, no, 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 no. I'm happy here. Everything's good. I was about to get married. Uh, you know, we had planned the wedding and for November, and uh, and just at the beginning of August, I had just finished a, a worldwide meeting. Everything had gone well. I get the phone call, and he says, "Come on up. I I'd just like to have dinner with you." That's strange. <laughs> So I go up, and uh, he said, uh, I'd like you to take over the label, uh, running all the, all the divisions. And I said, ah, oh, Michael, I thought we ruled that out. He said, no, you're the right guy for it. He said, but you've got five hours to make the decision. When this dinner is done, I need your answer by 11 o'clock tonight. Well, how do you even have a dinner now that you got to have a decision? That's all I'll be thinking about is trying to run through my head all the scenarios. And that's the, guy the way wants it me works. To pass the- mashed potatoes and i went back to the room and called my fiance at that point uh, fran schwartz and i said i think i can do this are you up for it we were both ex-new yorkers sounded like a good idea at the time and so i called him back and uh went into the office the next day he fired he fired the president that morning and i walked in called everybody in had our first powwow got back on the plane and went back to nashville because I came up there with like an overnight bag. <laughs> so uh, I went back and then, it, you know, all hell break loose, you know, because I'm going to have to move to New York. I'm about to get married. I mean, it's just crazy. So, And what does your fiance think about the move back home? Uh, she was excited about it because she was a New Yorker. Um, the unfortunate problem was she was working for Arista with Tim Dubois. She was one of the original founding members of the Arista group. Mm-hmm. And then... Um, she goes up there and she doesn't have that job anymore. So she's got to go find a, you know, a job up there. We're trying to find living in New York and get used to the roster. You get 100 acts where we had you know, 15. It's a different world completely. Hey, this is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. As a nostalgic voice from your past, I'm here to remind you that amongst the stressful and chaotic existence we live in 2024, you deserve to get away. It's time for a vacation, no matter when you're hearing this. And let me tell you how you'll get there. The 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. Want to bring the family to the mountains with the Santa Fe's available H-Track all-wheel drive? Well, it's got standard third-row seating and available dual wireless charging pads for the kids who just want to stare at their phone and not talk to you. You know what I mean. The Hyundai Santa Fe becomes available early 2024, so get on it now before all the good camping sites are full. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. 
So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform with one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. Access from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com slash stereo right now. NetSuite.com slash stereo. NetSuite.com slash stereo. The following ad is sponsored by Pets Best Insurance Services. Pets come into our lives in many ways. Shelters, breeders, or unexpected encounters. But no matter how you found your pet, they become our perfect match. Unfortunately, finding the right pet insurance plan can be hard. That's where Pets Best comes in. With a little information about you and your pet, Pets Best will recommend a plan that meets your needs and budget. Visit PetsBest.com to learn more today. Your perfect pet deserves the perfect coverage. PetsBest.com Were you more excited about going home or a different challenge? It's a different challenge. And what was different about it? Other, I mean, I, maybe the difference was just how wide the net was. All different sounds yeah. and different types of artists. We had, I had the jazz department, the R and B department at that point, uh, the rock department, and then pop, and then country reporting to me. So it was the whole portfolio. Do you have a part in hiring your replacement in Nashville? Uh, yes. And so you go up. Uh, I, you know, I was just kind of looking at some of the stuff you did when you went back, and I'm a fan of both or two of the acts that are, are directly credited to you, one of them being Dave. Um, so Dave Matthews Band, how, does, how does, does he and that group get to you? Well, we're pre-internet, and so kids at that point, um, as you may remember, when you went to see a band, you'd make a cassette tape. And then you pass it around the dorm. And we had a group of college interns, and this one college intern said, all my friends down here in the South, they got this guy, Dave Matthews Band, and, you know, we, you need to listen to this. That's how it got to you? Mm-hmm. Wow. Went to one, the, the, the college department reported to one of the guys in A&R, who actually is here, Pete Robinson, is here in Nashville as a publisher. And um, we went to Wetlands, um, Butchois, myself, um, a few other guys, and we walked into this place. The show was supposed to be at 2 o'clock in the morning. Walk in at like 1. 2 o'clock in the morning? Yeah. Walk in there. There's nobody there. And I'm looking at the NR group going, 201, about 75 guys start walking in, ball caps, chinos. About 205, the place is packed out. And everybody, everybody's doing the same thing, taking the cassette player, putting it in front of the, the band. Dave comes out, and I looked at Butch at one point. And we we're probably halfway through the set. And I said, you think you can get any of this stuff on the radio? He said, oh, I don't know about that, Joe. Was it long jam band stuff? Yeah. Yeah. And I said, you know what? I said, I think we just need to go for this because regardless of whether it goes on the radio or not, th- this is the most exciting thing I've seen in years. And then we went down and negotiated with Corn Capshaw, and uh, we actually put the record out because MTV at that point was the 800-pound gorilla. And we put an independent record out 
hit everything. No affiliation to RCA. People saw this record come out. They were jumping on it. Did you hide it because of what their brand was? No, we hid it because we knew that if we put it out, MTV wouldn't be as excited about it because they like the indie stuff. I got it. So, okay. So M- MTV's brand played into it. Yep. Got it. it. MTV started going, well, you guys, you need to pursue this. And I said, yeah, we'll get it. Got it. Started making the videos. Went on MTV. And then everybody figured it out later on it was an end around. <laughs> you mentioned Corin. That's like my guy. Yeah. You know, and he's, uh, you know, Davis playing in his bar. Mm-hmm. And, you know, found the bassist and, you know, put that. I mean, what a, what a story. And that, what a way to build a career, the way he built it throughout the touring spectrum. I mean, unbelievable. The first gig that Dave played west of the Mississippi was in Seattle at our annual meeting. He had never been up there. But, again, people flocked in. Was it a convincing that you had to do with Dave to go, hey, let's make these songs three and a half minutes and let's make you know, real, obviously real catchy hooks and, you know, I, what you do is awesome, but for the radio, it's a different animal? Or do, nope. you, do you get it? You just let them go. You know, I think our format is that animal. Dave was a completely different entity, completely. You just let him do what he did. You know, it was funny. We did an international meeting. We had started to really, you know, gold, 750,000 units. <clears throat> and I went to an international meeting in Barcelona and I was all excited because these guys have been waiting for us to come up with something for years, and we just hadn't delivered. So I walk in there, and I do my presentation. And, you know, I've got Dave on the big screen and everything, and we're doing the video and everything. And I look out, and most of the international guys that got their heads down at the desk, they are not interested. They're sleeping. They're napping. And they just never got it. It was an American thing. What do you think that thing is? Like, what, what, what about it is so American that someone international wouldn't get? Three and a half minutes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, tour, yeah, if you want to tour, which he didn't really do a whole lot of, but not for the radio. Wu-Tang. I mean, again, Wu-Tang was everywhere for me as a kid. Not the same as Dave, no. you know. It's, so what about Wu-Tang? And at what stage did you start to get to know the guys? Uh, we had done a production deal with a guy named Steve Rifkin, uh, Loud Records was the name of it. Not Big Loud, Loud. And um, we had had a couple of, uh, you know, get to first base, and that's as far as you went with a couple of the acts. And they brought in the Wu-Tang and uh, the demos of that, and everybody in the company just flipped. So, you know, it was part of the deal itself, so we got it, and then we started to develop it. Was it interesting to you guys in a positive way that they all had their own independent personalities and names and characteristics yeah. Uh, I mean, because in hip-hop groups, for the most part, when I was a, a kid, they didn't all stand out as individually and then work as well together at the same time. And all the guys, I mean, they did so much stuff separate, but they were always Wu-Tang. So that was a positive with you guys? Oh, yeah. I mean, you had all the... I mean, you saw it on stage. They were all distinct personalities. And I mean, and it was East Coast. You know, there was the West Coast out there, and you had all the Dr. Dre's and everything else, but this was an East Coast band, and they really did move the needle. Hot 97, I mean, you know, that was when there was rhythm stations out there. Was there a decision to make when they wanted to do solo stuff of which ones of them that you would sign and which ones you wouldn't, or did you... Did you cause I, I don't think you signed them all, did you, individually? 
Uh, no, not at that point. By the time they started doing solo, I was gone. Okay. So, okay, you're gone. Where'd, <laughs> that was quick. All right, all right. Where'd you go? I went back home. And why, why back to Nashville? That process, um, my boss had a very unrealistic expectation. In New York. Yeah. He thought, you can turn this thing around in a heartbeat. And we were... We were so far down in the hole, we didn't register on any meter. So it was like turning. I, I got a CDL license for my for a TV show, and I realized that turning around an eighteen wheeler, you can't just turn around an eighteen wheeler. It is very slow, very methodical. You, it sound, and if someone's like, you turn this around real quick, it just didn't happen. Like you, you wish it, but it wouldn't happen. First year, eighteen months was getting rid of people and acts. I dropped sixty acts. 60. 18 months. The intro stage was 18 months. Get, change all the people, drop all the acts. None of the acts came back to haunt us. And then you start building your team. And that takes time. And then what started to happen was then, you know, Dave comes on board, SWV, Wu-Tang. But I just wasn't having the fun because you were, you were trying to serve too many masters. And the, the expectation was we should be doing a lot more a lot sooner. And I just kept going, it's going to take more time. It's going to take more. No, 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 no. And I went, look, you know what? Maybe we're not meant for each other. So I'll leave and I'll go back to Nashville. I'll find a gig. And, and then that's when he said, no, 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 no. You're not going to go to work for somebody else. You're going to go work for us. And so I moved back here. When you moved back, did it feel like home again? Oh, yeah, yeah. But, I mean, at the same time, you know, I'd been out of, out of Nashville for four years. Things had started to change. SoundScan had come on board. So now you really started to see what was happening with record selling. And, you know, players were different. You got to get back down here, meet all the songwriters, all the publishers. Everybody knew me, but you still got to get in the pecking order. You know, how do you jump ahead? Isn't it crazy in four years in the creative space? I mean, it's like dog years. Yeah. You're oh, gone, yeah. You're gone four years. It's not, it's not four years. That's... Uh, generations because you've had so many even small changes in how the art is done, who the writers are, people that are coming with new ideas creatively. Yep. So you come back after four years, what did you find the biggest change was? After that short time, there really wasn't that short. Well, first thing I did was I went back out to the radio stations and I said, what's going on? Tell me what's going on. I mean, I can read a chart, but what's going on in the marketplace? And the artists themselves, you know, we were at that point where there was going to be a, a new group of people coming through, the Brooks and Dunn's and Alan Jackson's had really started to come on strong, but there was room for more. And so it was an opportunity. It was just going out there and finding out, okay, tell me what's working, what's not working. What are you missing? One of the things they told me was, you know, people become stars that never come back to visit us. So, you know, we'd start taking the artists out again, you know, the Alabamas of the world, go out there and see the radio stations and you curry favor and you get the opportunities. And the first act that I signed when we were down there was Mindy McCready. And, you know, we had a double platinum record out of the gate and then, you know, started again with Laurie Morgan and, you know, John Anderson and just things started to click. But it took a couple of years. Did you feel like you brought back the people element and somehow in four years people didn't value it as much? Well, I think that, you know, people looked at it and said, well, you know, can he do this again? I don't think so. You know, and so there was a lot of, well, prove it to me. And I went, okay, I'll prove it to you. And it took us probably three years to get ourselves back in because the roster had started to fall apart too. Um, and then we came back basically, you know, with the RCA label group with RCA and BNA changed the way we were staffing the label and how we were approaching things. 
Um, and then I spent a lot of time during the first couple of years basically taking songwriters. I'd take them over to the house. I'd just sit down with them and I'd say, look, this is what we're going to do. Give us an opportunity. If we don't do what we said we're going to do, you don't need to give us the songs. But give me a jump ball. And I did that with a bunch of writers and, you know, found that we started getting the songs again. And you know this town. It's songs. Yeah. You know, you get that going. You know, we can make good records. There are a lot of great producers here and, and musicians, but you need the damn songs and you need them continually. And so we just, we did the same thing with songwriters and publishers that we do to radio. Treated them better than anybody else. And they found that when we went after it, you gave us a record, we did the job. In my, I guess, 10 years or so here now, I've seen a couple of real, you know, meteoric type successes where someone's like, bam, here I am, boom, superstar. Doesn't happen a lot. Maybe only two that I look at and go, dang, that was quick and that was that was like extreme success. I missed the Aldine. I missed Aldine. I wasn't here. I heard that was a kind of a rocket ship. Yep. I was here right after FGL, so I did not see that. And I hear that was kind of a rocket ship. Um, obviously, I, I've been here for Combs, Luke Combs. I've, I've seen nothing like that before. And even Sam. You know, Sam, same kind of way, different, just launched, universally loved until he got so loved that some people had to be like, I don't love Sam anymore. You know, and I think that's, that's always been the goal is get so big that you have some sort of backlash, right? Because that just means you're, you're a monster. Who am I missing? And I'm sure I miss many. Who else did you see come into town and just kind of go, all right, I'm here. I've got something a little different. And then boom, away it went. Uh, what period you're talking about in the Any, last period? No, I'm talking about in, in just your whole time in Nashville because I've only been able to see the last 10. Uh, the Chicks. Oh, yeah? Yeah, Faith. Um, the Chicks seem to be so different. Was there, and this, this analogy is not going to be good when I use Sam, but that's that's all I can really lean on, is that Sam was, and listen, Sam is as country as it gets, as a person and grew up. Do the chicks have any, like, they're not as country, they're not country. Did that happen yeah, at all? Not at all. Even though Natalie was... Really? No. Or their sound is different. How about their sound is not? Really? Yeah. I mean, those records just, they exploded. And when they got on stage, you know, they really shined at award shows. So the chicks, who else? You can think Faith? Of yeah. I mean, Faith, definitely. I mean, you know, you start off doing covers, and then you, all of a sudden you wind up with a song like Breathe. It's huge. It just, you know, that pop crossover changes the game dramatically. But the question always is the same thing. How do you follow that? And what do you start doing musically? Do you stay true to your country roots or do you follow what New York and L.A. are saying? Give me more of that. And when you do give me more of that, you kind of lose the country base. And that's what happens. You don't get that success. Uh, Shania, were you here when that was? Yes. What, what was that like? Oh, it was. We couldn't believe the numbers. I mean, all of us on the other side were going, what the? That can't be. And it was. And it was international. And, and that very rarely happened. So you have these monster stars in Nashville, and as someone that's an international star like Shania, could she be in Nashville and still feel safe? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the rec as long as, you know, it's the same old thing. If the music is there, you're okay. And you can go internationally, but the reality is when the music starts to tail off, then everybody starts poking holes in you. And by tail off, you mean if it's not country? You mean the country folk will be like... Yeah, people hey, would take the crossover and be happy with it, but... When you start losing and you start, again, you go to the other side making records for pop and not considering your country base, that's when you have a problem. Let me ask you about outlaw country for a second because 
the more I read about it, and I do consider myself a bit of a country music historian in that, you know, if they do a documentary on some of the older stars that I grew up watching with my grandmother, she was the whole influence on me, right? If it's when they shot the PBS Charlie Pride, I was right there. Like, I freaking love Charlie Pride. And so I feel like I got mo a lot of it down just through learning and reading and watching videos. But the outlaw country thing is interesting to me. And slap me in the head and tell me I'm wrong. But I feel like at first, that was very much a marketing tactic. It was. The out and, and now there's this romantic with old school country fans that it wasn't, that they were just robbing stores and... Well, I think there's... They ran parallel tracks. I mean, the idea was, you know, Jerry Bradley, who I was working for, as I said earlier, remember the Time Life series of those books? Mm -hmm. He took that art, and that's what was the outlaw. That was the basic outline of the album and called it Outlaw, the Outlaws. And, uh, you know, I don't know if Tom Paul was an outlaw, neither was Jesse at that point. But Willie and Whalen, you know, bucked the system. At that time, you were supposed to be recording in RCA Studios or Columbia Studios. That was part of the deal. We had a union. And both of those guys, that's really where the outlaw came from. We're not going to record there. You guys are, you know, you're on the clock. I don't want to have to follow the clock. I want to be able to record when I want to record. And if I want to go over, I'm going to go over. And I'll pay the overtime for it. And that just didn't sit well with the powers that be. And so they did stuff outside the system. And that was outlaw. So that not punching record executives in the face, no. spitting on, it's outlawing that, again, the formula that had been built, they were just going, we don't want to live in this formula because we feel like we can create in a better way, in a different way. Yeah, and, and also they were, the way they approached their music, the, I mean, they were covering, you know, Bob Seger. What has Bob Seger got to do with country? The lyric. I mean, Whalen just, you know, supporting Steve Earle when the town wasn't supporting Steve Earle. It really was about the music, the music, the music. If you were with him on the music, you're good to go. Regardless if it went up or it went down, he didn't care. He just wanted to make his brand of music. Same with Willie. Hey, this is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. As a nostalgic voice from your past, I'm here to remind you that amongst the stressful and chaotic existence we live in 2024, you deserve to get away. It's time for a vacation, no matter when you're hearing this. And let me tell you how you'll get there. The 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. Want to bring the family to the mountains with the Santa Fe's available H-Track all-wheel drive? Well, it's got standard third-row seating and available dual wireless charging pads for the kids who just want to stare at their phone and not talk to you. You know what I mean. The Hyundai Santa Fe becomes available early 2024, so get on it now before all the good camping sites are full. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform with one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. Accessed from anywhere. 
You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com slash stereo right now. NetSuite.com slash stereo. NetSuite.com slash stereo. My grandmother would tell me, because uh, Johnny Cash is from Arkansas, that's where we grew up, and that she would go to some Johnny Cash shows before he really blew up and crossed over because, you know, rock, pop, he was everywhere. Uh, Christian, he, did, he just covered it all. But when he, he was a country artist, and she knew he was a country artist. People would be at the shows being, he's not country. Like, angry, like, he's not country. And it feels to me like that has always been universally said, like, since the beginning. Like, p- any sort of movement in any direction... It's always said, well, that ain't country. Did you find that to be frustrating in your time? Oh, sure. I mean, you know, I remember the first time we we worked uh, Carrie on Jesus Take the Wheel. And, you know, we had a bunch of stations come back and going, well, she's an American Idol winner. She's not country. Go, Listen to the song. What are you talking about? She's not country. You know, girls from Oklahoma. Listen to her talk. Yeah. I yeah, mean, what, what do you want? I mean. You know, she was on a show that gave her a platform, but it doesn't mean that she's not who she is in her heart. But that's, I think that's, you know, we go back to, you know, Olivia Newton-John, John Denver, when they were on the country charts. You know, you had a people, Oliver Newton-John, you know, she's not country. What's he doing here? I mean, you know? burning the slip with his name on it for Entertainer of the Year. Yeah, Charlie Rich. Yeah. Yeah, I was there at that show. You were, you were yeah, there. Oh, yeah, yeah. And so, well, okay, so, I've listen, I've seen the, the show. I've seen the presentation there. I've seen, you know, John, John Denver. He's not there, obviously. Right. In the room, are people like, ha-ha, that's funny? Or are they like, yeah, that's right? Like, what? You know, I, th- I think going back at that point, a large part of it, it, too, is it's business. So what is John Denver doing for you as a publisher or you as a manager or you as an agent? Or you, I mean, aside from us, RCA, having the John Denver catalog, we're one of the few beneficiaries in the town. There were some people who had parts of songs, but, it, you know, normally when, you know, Luke Combs wins or Morgan Wallen wins or, you know, Eric Church wins, publishers in the town, producers in the town, everybody's sharing in the excitement and the wealth to a certain degree. But also they feel like it's here. You've recorded in Nashville. You've made the record in Nashville. So it's that sense of ownership and also protection to a certain degree. So then by that logic, John Denver was outlaw country. <laughs> I don't know he would ever said, yeah, yeah, I get the point. I mean, and John yeah. Denver made country songs. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, this song I says, thank God I'm a country boy. And when he did the award show, they were highlights. Yeah. You know, the music shuts everybody up at the end of the day. Because when you beam in and you're not there, that's one thing. But when you get on there and you bring that fiddle out and everybody goes, well, I guess he is country. Heck yeah. So, uh, like Rocky Mountain, I, mean, I can go yeah. through all the John Denver yeah. songs yeah, yeah. where I'm just like, I, at this stage in 2022, am a bit in disbelief that John Denver, finger quotes, wasn't country. Now, I understand wh- why you're saying that, because people feel like oh, he does, he's not one of our group right. that, that's helping the, uh, we'll call it an economy, that's helping the economy here. But, may, I mean, how, I, I was, how do they not think John Denver's country? I love, love John Denver and always... You know, he wasn't even from the Rocky Mountains is what's crazy. Like, to me, in my head, I mean, he's marketed as the mountain man. Right. Uh, but, yeah, he definitely made some country music. Uh, well, 
You're going to the Hall of Fame. I, I just that is that is just so cool. I wish I had could be more poignant there, and but that is just so freaking cool that you're going to the, the Country Music Hall of Fame. Thank you. Uh, it's um, you know one of the things I've been doing over the last decade is I've been going to those press conferences and just because I've had so many artists that I've signed or friends who have gone in and. I think of all the things that I've done, it's one of the most intimate nights and special nights. You know, we're always used to big things, especially in our award shows and everything else. But this is a much smaller, more intimate part of it. And it represents people that aren't always entertainers and recognizes their work. So, you know, Eddie Bears goes in or, you know, you sit there and you go, oh, my God. And you hear the story. You understand what's going on, you know, and, and it could be. Ronnie and Kicks. I mean, when uh, Ronnie and Kicks were getting ready to introduce me, we were talking about what was your reaction when you heard about it. And Kicks looked at Ronnie and he said, we just looked at one another and went, you got to be kidding me. (laughs) You know, which is basically how I felt like, because you really don't expect. And uh, I don't think anybody ever that I know of aims for it. You just do your job. And, you know, the God smile upon you, you get in there. Got three final things for sure. you. Number one's Keith Whitley. He's mm. going in with you. Yeah. What do you remember about Keith? Oh God, the voice, the smile, the sense of humor, the love of the format. My God. He just, you know, I, I think back to those. When it's, it's the same thing. You start to go down that path, and it's just bump after bump. And you're finally starting to make your headway, Miami, Miami. You know, you're starting to get there. You make this record that would have catapulted him into the male vocalist of the year on the Stranger to the Rain. You know, you just go, oh, my God. And then he's gone. And then the fact that it was Laurie and Keith, it would have been George and Tammy all over again because those two singing together, those are two great classic country voices. But Keith... um, you know, you were talking about, well, I was talking to you before about being a label head. And, I mean, I had dealt with Whalen through some of the drug problems and him getting clean. But I hadn't been on the other side. I had been an observer. And nobody tells you about addiction. You know, it's not something that, you know, you, you, you learn as you're getting in this whole thing. But, you know, we tried so many different ways to get Keith to get clean and you know i remember sitting down talking to the the therapist and saying if he doesn't want to do it you can't make him do it and so it was one of those things that you just it was such a such a loss and such a waste at the same time this is a very personal question regarding that and i'll tell you i had the same situation with my mom and you know my mom died very young of drugs and alcohol and i would check her into rehabs and i would say the same thing like what do we got to do here and they're like well you can do this, and you can pound the hammer, and you can. But if she doesn't want to do it, it is never going to happen. And that was a really hard thing for me to accept. Don't know that I still accept it, honestly. Yeah, I I, I get it, and I, I understand it. But it's a very very difficult thing for me, and there's still guilt that yeah. I have, even trying to facilitate, trying to support. You know, with you going through that situation with him. Any of those feelings? Oh, yeah. Because 
what happened was Laurie called me. We were launching Laurie's record and we were about to do the promo tour. And she called and she said, what do I do? I mean, I don't know whether he can handle my being gone. I said, Laurie, it's your call, but this is what you want to do. I mean, is going to be anybody with Keith? And she said, yeah, there will be people with him. And the decision was made to move forward. But when he died, uh, my fiance and Randy Goodman came running in to Maud's down the row at that point. I was having lunch with Eddie Arnold and, and motioned for me to come over and said, Keith just died. And so I hurried through my lunch with Eddie because we had to find Lori. Lori was on the road. Nobody had cell phones. She was in a car going, and you did not want to hear that come over the air. Hey, Keith Whitley has just died. We're really sad about that. And she's in a freaking car. And we found her in Seattle, thank God, before it happened and then flew her back. But I remember getting that album and driving around the row for hours, just playing it over and over again because Garth Fundus and I had gone in the studio and I went, it's that album that you're just sitting there going, oh my God, this is perfection. Commercially, artistically, it is the soul that he's, he has. It's just, it's there. And then just crying because it, you know, did I do the right thing? You know, I appreciate you sharing that story with me. Uh, this is number two of three. Do you miss it? You know, you're retired now. You, uh, it, it, what I know, what I can sense in you, you're such a creative, even though I don't know if you'll give yourself credit for being a creative, you are, because you've changed so many things in how this industry was, is, and is still do. I mean, is still working toward. Do you miss it? I miss the process of making the music. Um, I don't miss all the, the bull that we went through now, especially with the corporations and all the uh, initiatives they have and, and the way the system has changed where people are, it's so much about data and not enough to me about gut because I can't tell you how many times we made a decision. It was kind of like, let's take this shot. Mm. And, you know, it's a game of chances. Sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. And it, you could have all the data in the world. doesn't mean that somebody you were talking about before in terms of songs. Right. You think this works? It doesn't. Oh, I didn't think this one would. It's just that game. You don't know till the people get a chance to really spend the time with it. But that's the part I miss. However, you know, I've spent that time since I stepped down with the CMA and I still work with Kenny. So I, I get my fix. Yeah. You know, it comes in and it comes in lots of different ways, working with Robert Deaton on the award shows and everything else. Um, but no, not anymore. I mean, you know, I, I feel like when I ended, you know, Miranda was the last act that I, I actually broke through. And that that felt great. And so to see what she's doing after that has been really satisfying. But no, I'm good. <laughs> I guess that's how you want to feel. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the last thing I'll say is, and it's not really a question, but it's more of a just uh, from me to you, a very personal thing. It's, you know, when I got to this town... I, it, maybe I remember it differently. I didn't feel very welcomed here for a while, for, for many years. Uh, you know, I didn't wear a cowboy hat. I, I definitely uh, grew up in a rural part of the South, but also had influences that weren't just country and was very open about it on a platform that that wasn't really appreciated, especially at the time. Now, culture's changed. I think I've been a big part of trying to move it forward a little bit um, while also appreciating the history of it. And, from in my career, doing radio, doing television, doing comedy and books and all these things that I've just 
never knew how to do. I just attack and just punch until something moves, you know? And then you're like, mm-hmm. oh, that, that moves. If I punch, let me keep going. Over the past four or five or six years, you know, it's been, hey, we have this award show. And I'll be in the conversation to host the show. And I'll hear the, the people that are like, you can't, other radio companies, no, we don't want them. We'll boycott the show if he did. The one person that it comes <laughs> back to me who is constantly publicly or privately in my corner as in you just have to consider this guy because he has the skill set to do it and he should at least be looked at is you and i didn't even know you and they would come back and say you know who's kind of got your back and i was like well i wouldn't even go say hi to him like he's too much of a big wig i would never go and and so my introduction to appreciating you as a person was it didn't have to be me, but you were just sticking up for somebody you didn't know. He had no interest in me. Not as a pro. We don't know each other. It wasn't like you're fighting for your friend, but I, but I just always appreciated that because I know that wasn't the popular thing to do. And you're in there with a bunch of radio people, and it, listen, it's changed a little now. And I get to turn stuff down now, which is the coolest thing ever. <laughs> the greatest thing. But you I'm, worked for that opportunity. Absolutely, no doubt about yeah. it. And if you know, and there have been offers and situations, and now I get to go. I don't think this is right for me, but. I didn't always get to do that. But the one person that people would come and go, hey, man, Joe's like saying we should, they should stop just shutting it down immediately and at least look at it was you. So just eyeball to eyeball, like I just really appreciated that because I didn't feel like I had any allies in this town. I think the town, I went through the same thing you did when I first got here. The last thing I did was feel at home. It took quite some time. You know, you're the outsider. You are the outsider and you're trying to do things that are different. I got this message from Charlie Monk. He called me after uh, the announcement, and he said, I just, he left the voicemail. I still have it here. I kept it. He said, you know, when I met you, I thought you were a goddamn snot-nosed Yankee kid (laughs) who couldn't do shit. You know, I mean, that kind of stuff. And so he said, and I called him back, and I said, I was. I was. I was that guy. But, you know, I I learned, and I went through it, and I, I gained respect and love for what I was doing and the people around, and you did the same thing. I mean, to be honest with you, the first time I met you, I don't know if you remember this, was over at John Ivey's house. I think it was a holiday. You just got into town. And John was, I mean, John has been a friend of mine for... Right, I didn't know that. Oh, yeah, long, and he's been great to us as a company for a long period of time, because he was always that guy that would go, eh. I mean, one of the stories I have on John was... (laughs) In New York, he said, uh, he called Butch and he said, we had, where were you when the world stopped turning? He said, if you can get Alan to take the steel out of that song, I'll play it. On Kiss FM Los Angeles, pop station, yeah. Yeah. And I said, "Uh, Butch, I'll make the call, but I got to tell you, Alan Jackson and no steel, I don't think that's happening. Call Alan. I said, Alan, the big top 40 radio station will play this record. This guy's a really good friend of ours, but uh, I don't know how you feel about this. Well, what do they want? Take the steel out. It's like one, two, three. I like steel. <laughs> <laughs> End of story. But John is a guy that if he comes in and says, "Guy's going to do something," you know, I'm good. We've been together a long time through the trenches. But quite honestly, I mean, what you've done, I mean, you know, people are betting against you, and you just go, "No, I can do this." And you've done that, and you've gone outside of the genre. And, you know, you'll keep working at your craft and keep improving and widening the, the goalposts for yourself. So congratulations to yourself. Well, not about me. I just wanted to say I appreciated you. 
Um, you've impacted my confidence in the town. And so I appreciate that. But uh, congratulations, man. It's Thanks. just awesome. It's an honor to have you here for an hour. You have affected this format in so many ways that people don't even know. And you probably don't even remember all the ways. It's just, it's one after the other. I could do three hours. Uh, but I, I injured my calf because I'm getting older. And now I got to go to a physical therapist. So, uh, <laughs> it's, it's life. It's life now. I, We're both injured I right now. I live hurt, yeah. I don't think I've had this kind of edge on my voice in a long time. I'm sorry about it. Well, Joe, thank you. You're more than I, welcome. I'll just end with that. Thank you. This has been a real treat. And hopefully I'll see you soon. You will. Awesome. Thanks, Mark. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Busy weekends are a breeze with American Express Platinum Card. 8 a.m., wait to board plane in the Centurion Lounge. <sighs> Much better. 2 p.m., grab seats for the game. 6 p.m., book an exclusive reservation with Resi Global Dining Access. Because the American Express Platinum Card offers access to the Centurion Lounge, must-see live events, and exclusive reservations at renowned restaurants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply. Hey there, it's Ryan Seacrest for Safeway. Now that spring is here, it's time to focus on self-care and revitalize your personal care routine. Now through March 26, head in store, shop for all your favorite personal care essentials, and earn four times rewards points. Shop for items like Crest Toothpaste, Secret Deodorant, Old Spice Deodorant, or Gillette Razors. Offer expires March 26. Restrictions apply. Promotions may vary. Visit Safeway.com for more details.